Well, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice as your sons and daughters. We are so thankful for our salvation. And Father, we do thank you for your word in which you speak to us. For your word is truth, and we pray that you will sanctify us in your truth. Implant the word within us and let it take root. Let us be conformed further into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord and live lives that um, reflect you to a world that is in desperate need. Father, we ask that you would shape us, form us, renew us, all for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as Douglas mentioned, we're continuing in 1 Timothy and we move into chapter 2. Um, Timothy has received this letter from Paul. It's the second letter that went to, to Ephesus, this one personally to Timothy. And in the first chapter, he really spends some time uh, talking about the doctrinal issues that are going on. False teaching is taking place, the charge not to teach false doctrine, and then the entrusting of the gospel that I spoke about last week, which I apparently went rather long because uh, we have a song cut out of the service this morning. I guess Eric doesn't trust me. That I went from three points down to two, so we may get out at 1130. Um, I digress. So this week we come to chapter two, where Paul now gets to the matter of business. He wrote this letter to Timothy that the church, us, might know how we ought to behave, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And in chapter 2, he specifically begins to address when we come together for worship, the meeting of the church. And so we will be looking into that topic. And it's interesting, we focused on prayer in the month of January, and it comes back up here, which I think is very apropos. In 1957 in New York City, in the lower Manhattan area, there was a Dutch Reformed church. And it was slowly declining. It was losing members. There was a lot of reasons for it. Some people were just leaving to move west. Population, the demographics have ch- had changed. And then not much was happening in the way of immigration. So the church got together and they decided that they would do something about it. And they hired a layman, a businessman. His name was Jeremy Lamfer, and they wanted him to come in and try to reverse this trend. And so he did. He came in with a plan, and it was for an aggressive visitation program. He thought if he could just get around and talk to everybody and encourage them, people would begin to come back to the church. But despite his best efforts, despite his diligence, the church remained listless. But Jeremy wasn't discouraged. Uh, He was a man that enjoyed regular fellowship in prayer with our Father. And he thought to himself, you know, others might want to do that too. So, he put together a handbill, a flyer is what we would call it today, and said that he would have a prayer meeting beginning uh, every week on Wednesdays, beginning on September 23rd of 19. or 1857. America surely needed prayer, he thought. The United States was in spiritual peril politically and economically. 
Many people had been disillusioned that were in the church because there were several predictions from people in the church that the end of the world was going to happen in the 1840s, and it didn't. Well, there was also some angst and agitation about the slavery issue that kept growing, breeding political unrest. Civil war was on the horizon, and people seemed to know it. So he thought prayer was needed. So the flyers went out, and the day came, and he gathered in an office building that he had rented on Fulton Street. And on that first day, at noon, lunchtime, six people showed up. Jeremy wasn't discouraged. He thought, well, six people is still six people. And he remembered from his earlier days in Scripture memory that where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. And so on that September 23rd afternoon, Jeremy didn't moan, didn't complain. He wasn't discouraged. He simply bent down on his knees and joined the other six and began to pray. It was a humble start for a prayer meeting, but it was a faithful start. Paul takes up the topic of prayer here in the second chapter of Timothy. He knows that when, the, when it comes to the order of the church, that there needs to be a priority. There needs to be an order to things. And so he comes out, guns a-blazing. The priority for the church is prayer. Before all else, it's prayer. Jesus himself was the example of someone who was devoting themselves to prayer. Regularly in his ministry, he would leave and go to an isolated place to pray. He taught his disciples to pray through the Lord's Prayer. He prayed at Gethsemane repeatedly over and over he did nothing without going to the father in prayer and so Paul brings that up here to Timothy we need to stop the false teaching yes but there's an importance to prayer and so we're going to look at the priority of prayer and its benefits and then we're going to look at the purpose of prayer and I can sum it up this way we are to be a praying church for the sake of the gospel, to win souls to Christ. That's what this passage is all about. Our role as being prayer warriors. And so, we need to pray. Paul probably even thought about James. James being probably one of the earliest letters to be written. And James said that the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. When I was in seminary, I've shared this before, Sinclair Ferguson used to talk to us when we'd take a break in the evenings. He used to teach these modular courses and come in on a Wednesday night, and we'd meet Wednesday night and Thursday night and all day Friday, and then he'd go back to South Carolina where he was living at the time. And as we were around the coffee maker and having a cup of coffee or water or something else, he'd give us spiritual insight, pastoral insight, if you will. And he used to say this all the time. He says, you know, you can tell the health and the well-being of a church by the number of cars in the parking lot on prayer night. That we don't have a prayer night. But on Wednesday, mark it on your calendars, March 22nd, we will meet here for prayer. Six o'clock. March 22nd, 
Wednesday, we'll meet for prayer at 6 o'clock. So hopefully we will have more than six people. Prayer is important in the economy of God. Not only is it the priority, it's the first thing that should be done because Paul says, first of all then, and he wants you to pray. But there is a, a method to this. He urges that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. I believe that he uses four words there to give a sense of urgency to it. A lot of commentators say, you know, this, it's hard to go through and you want to parse these words and try to figure out all these different types of prayer. I think George Knight, a commentator, has it right in that he says it's not really that you have to pray four different ways. It's, it's to show the urgency, the intensity, the broadness, the breadth of our prayers as we offer them up to the Lord. It's a priority that we're supposed to take. And so we do that. He talks about, George McKnight talks about putting these four words into one sentence. And he says this, it would translate somewhat like this, making requests for specific needs by bringing these needs before God and doing so boldly on the behalf of others. And in so doing, bring it with thanksgiving for the one who hears and the one who answers. So it's a priority. So why is prayer so hard? Why is it so hard? I mean, when we think about it, we will get up in the morning and we'll get going, we'll get active. We might not have a quiet time. We might skip it because of all the things going on in the world. And the next thing we know, we're putting our head on, on the pillow at the end of the evening and we start, Father, I come before you. Why is it so hard? My mentor, Dan Duncan, mentioned this. He said that William Cooper, the hymn writer, in one of his hymns, wrote these words that are very, very profound and I believe are absolutely true. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. That's why it's hard. Satan does not want the people of God to do the things of God. And he won't always go about it in an overt way in, in that he's going to tempt you to do all these sinful behaviors. He can even just, just, just distract you with good things, even if they're mundane things. Hey, I've got to get my kids to soccer practice. Hey, we've got to get you ready. Let's pack up all these things and we've got to go. And one thing leads to another. And you're... you're one thing after another, and before you know it, the day's done. Another prayerless day. Yeah, there's the, the flesh, the temptations of the flesh, there's the temptations of the world, but there's also just life. Paul wants us to, uh, to take a step back and say, you know what, church, sons, daughters of Christ, I want you to do, if you do nothing else, pray. Pray. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say how long. He doesn't. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's going to say, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Those are commands that are given to us. And so, prayer is a commandment. We should be doing it. 
And we get so caught up in life, we don't even realize we're being disobedient. Prayer is a means to an end. God has ordained the end. That He will save a people for Himself. And He's given us the means. And prayer is one of the means of grace. And this is the astounding thing. That, that God would actually include us in the process. Yes, He elects. Yes, He predestines. Yes, He saves. The prophet Jonah said, Salvation is of the Lord. And that is absolutely true. And yet He says, Pray, believer. Pray for all people. That's what He says in this text. Thanksgiving be made for all people. Have to pause there for just a minute. I want you to think about that for just a moment. All people. Does he mean, because he's commanded us to pray elsewhere in Scripture, that we need to pray for all people, literally? There's 7.9 billion people in the world. How would you even begin to do that? I was looking this week. If you, mathematicians, I looked up some things because I, Joanne Brown's a mathematician and she, I thought of her and I thought about this and I thought, okay, how long does it take to count to 100? Okay, the average person can count to 100 in 100 seconds. Most numbers are single syllable and then it gets into double, two syllables, but they're very, very short. I mean, some people can count to 125 seconds. You know, the old FedEx commercial where you begin to talk really fast like I'm doing right now. Um, so it takes 100 seconds basically to count to 100. You know how long it takes to count to a billion? If you could do it at the same pace as counting to 100, it would take you 31.6 years to count to a billion. And there's 7.9 billion people in the world. But we know that counting, the bigger the number gets, the more words you're using. 989,765,321. Mathematicians say it will take you more than 100 years to count to a billion if you said every word. I bring that up because the all here is limited in its scope. It is really meaning not all literally, but all kinds of people. One of my favorite phrases, I was talking to Steve LeBlanc in the office before coming out here is when God uses the word all in His words, sometimes it means all without distinction, not all without exception. All without distinction being all kinds of people, male, female, adults, children, senior citizens, people of all nations, all races, all colors. It doesn't matter. We are to pray for all kinds of people. Not all, kind, all people literally. And there's a beauty to that. God created each and every one of us and has placed us in a particular place. 
with a particular personality, with particular friends, with particular acquaintances. He has put us in our particular vocation and we come into contact with all kinds of people. Paul is saying, believer, priest, pray for those people. Pray for all kinds of people. If Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees, what happens when the whole church, all of Trinity, prays for all kinds of people? There's a multiplying effect in that prayer. Can you see? All kinds of people that you know, you will pray for. All kinds of people that I know, I will pray for. And so on. And there's a multiplying effect. And what are we praying for? Paul will get to that. We are to pray first and foremost, we're to have the priority of prayer, but for their salvation. We pray that people will come to Christ. After I graduated seminary, it was years after my grandfather, Arthur Wilson, died. I've talked about him before and how he had this innate ability to do a lot of different things. He flew airplanes, taught himself to do that. He was a general contractor. He taught himself how to do that. He learned Spanish that he could get on the radio. He could do a five-minute spot and do a little devotional and tell people about Jesus. He had gone to Good Tidings Bible College in San Francisco, California. He did a lot of things. But it was after... I got out of seminary. I was talking with my mother. I was out there in California. And we were looking in the hallway and there's pictures of the whole family. Both sets of grandparents. You may have something like this in your house. And then them and then all their children and then at that time grandchildren and so on. And my mother said to me, she goes, your grandfather would have been proud. And I said, okay. She said, do you know that your grandfather, when I was just a girl, prayed for you? And I'm like, what? When I was just a girl, my father prayed for you. Prayed for me, my future husband, for our children, for their children, for their spouses, three, four generations for salvation. Now, my grandfather died before I came to Christ. The power of prayer, brothers and sisters. Paul wants you to see your priority is prayer. Your priority is pray for the lost, that they can come to Christ. You know people that I don't. Be a praying people. Let us make Satan tremble. And there's a benefit, not only priority, but a benefit to prayer. Paul goes in to say, not only pray for all people, but pray for leaders. Pray for kings. Pray for queens, maybe, if you live in Great Britain. Pray for leaders. Why? Why pray for leaders? So that we can live quiet and tranquil lives. So the church can be at peace. 
During this time, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was evident throughout the Roman Empire. Roads were built and there was peace throughout, so the church was unhindered. It was persecuted, but it was unhindered from traveling abroad and getting the gospel out. We want peaceful times so the church can flourish, so that we, we can grow. It's not that we, it doesn't when we are persecuted, but it does better when we're not persecuted, when we're at peace. And so we should pray for peace from our leaders or with our leaders, that God would give them wisdom, that God would help them to lead and govern well, because the governments of the world have an, uh, an obligation to protect their people, to restrict evil. There's a protection that takes place. In turn, the church should be praying for those leaders to do their job well. Romans 13 gets into the appointment of governments and how God operates there. And brothers and sisters, we pray for leaders whether we like them or not. God doesn't belong to a political party. God is the King of Kings. He said, this is my kingdom. This is my agenda. You pray for all leaders. It has precedent in Scripture. Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon in chapter 29 of his book. And he says, pray for the leaders. And the people of Israel did, even in exile, even in bondage. And so you know what happened? God raised up in Isaiah 45, it talks about Cyrus, who was with the Medes and the Persians. And that nation rose up and conquered Babylon. And who was set free? Israel. They got to return, go back to Jerusalem. And so, you see a benefit to prayer. We can live quiet and tranquil lives. We can mature in the gospel. We can take it to the four corners of the world. So we want peace. And we want to make prayer a priority. We pray for our leaders. The Great Commission begins with the Great Intercession. The Great Commission begins with the great intercession. It is to be big. It is to be expansive. It is to be wide. We are to pray for renewal, for salvation, for revival. We're to pray for missionaries. We're to pray for church plants. We're to pray that the people of God will be mature and strengthened to do the work of ministry, particularly the sharing of the Gospel. Samuel Miller wrote a book, Thoughts on Public Prayer. Here's what he has to say about prayer. A good public prayer ought always to include a strong marked reference to the spread of the gospel and earnest petitions for the success of the means employed by the church for that purpose. As it forms a large part of the duty of the church to spread the knowledge of the way of salvation all around her, to send it to the uttermost parts of the world and all within her to reach the destitute, those who do not have it. She ought to assemble and pray fervently for the grace of Christ to fall. We're to pray for 
all types of people. We're to pray for our leaders, for the gospel to go forth. So what is the purpose of our prayer? As I've already said, it's the spread of the gospel. But Paul gets into specifics about this because there is a perception in the world that there are many gods. Many gods. Nations seem to have their own gods. In India, there is a pantheon of gods. And so, though we want to pray in the broadest sense, and sow the gospel, if you will, in the broadest sense, there is a narrow way to salvation. There is the broad and the narrow. You know the parable of the sower where Jesus was teaching and He talked about the sower, which is Him, and the seed, which is the Word of God. And He talks about casting the Word of God, the Gospel, and it just goes everywhere. But it doesn't take root everywhere. Some on hard ground, it doesn't take. Some gets choked out by the thorns. Some are in shallow places and it comes up and then it dies out by the heat of the day. But on the good soil, it takes root. But a lot of people don't like to hear that. They want to hear that there are many ways to get to God. The Archbishop of Canterbury had a conversation with Jane Fonda years ago. Some of you won't even know who she is. She was an activist when I was a kid. Um, Movie star. Very politically active in, in stating her ways. But she was also very much new age. And in this conversation with the Archbishop of Canterbury, he happened to say, you know, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Her response was, well, that might be true for you, but it's not for me. Jane Fonda was one that would have been a proponent of there's many ways to Christ. Doesn't, I mean, many ways to God. It doesn't matter if it's Hinduism or Buddhism. It doesn't matter. All roads lead to God. But that's not the case. Paul wants us to see that our fervent prayer is particular Not that it doesn't cover all people, but it is particular to what it will bring about. As I said earlier, God does elect. God does predestine. But God also supplies the means. And prayer and the giving of the gospel are those means. And so we see that we are to... Let people know that although the gospel goes out broadly and it is for all people, that it is narrow. In the text, we get to the verse 3 and 4. It says, This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We have that word all again there. Same word that was used earlier. And people get trip up on this and they said, well, that's what it says there. God desires all people to be saved. Well, if He desires all people to be saved, then what about election? What, what about predestination? What about those things? It seems that there's a contradiction here. But there's not. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
What he desires is that same thing. All kinds of people to be saved. Some of every nation, tribe, and tongue. He wants them to come to the word of truth. To knowledge of their salvation. The gospel is broad. All are invited. But it is narrow. And there is only one God. Paul here is repeating the Shema that is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then he doesn't stop there. He said, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This becomes significant. Significant. Because the gospel tells us that we are sinners, separated by God, alienated. That that we cannot pay the debt that we owe. But by the law, it has to be paid. And then God is just, He's righteous, He has to punish sin. So how do you save a people? It's through a mediator. If you've ever had the opportunity to read through Job, Job is in the Old Testament. It tells the story about a man that is, uh, falls into affliction by Satan. He is a righteous man. You hear people talk about the patience of Job, but really it is Job knowing that he is righteous because he knows his Redeemer. But throughout that, Job doesn't understand I don't know that Job was ever to understand the story. I think it's more for us and the saints through the ages than it was for Job. And so Job gets to one point and Job doesn't understand how he can be reconciled to God. How these things can be reconciled. And, and he says in the 29th chapter that he, he, he says if there was only someone that could meet us in the middle. He was thinking of Christ who was to come, the God-man. And that's where this text is going here, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This speaks about Jesus' humanity, but it also speaks of His deity. Because He is truly God and He is truly man. He is both. He's the only one that can shake hands with both and bring both together. And it is fascinating that Paul gets to the nitty-gritty here in the narrow way. That yes, anyone, whosoever will shall be saved. But at the same time, their salvation is dependent upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus can relate to God because He's fully God. He is one with God. He says in the 17th chapter of John, I and the Father are one. He is also born of the Virgin, so He's totally human. And then He does the work. He's not only the right person to be a mediator, He does the work of mediation. He makes Himself a ransom for many. When you go to seminary um, and you take the languages, specifically Greek, 
The first word that you will learn is a word lupo, which literally just means to loose. Like if you're wearing a shoe and they have the laces and you pull them, or if I pulled my bow tie, it would come untied. Um, it's to loose. Ransom is rooted in that word. To be ransomed is for someone to pay a price and to set you free that you can go. You, you can think of paying the price by going to the grocery store. You collect your items throughout the grocery store and you put them in the cart and you go up and you check out and they scan all the items and then you say this will be this much. And you pull out the cash or your debit card or credit card and you pay for the transaction. And so once that transaction goes through, those groceries are yours. They don't belong to the store anymore. That is paying the price. The text here goes further than that. God puts a preposition in front of this word ransom that says that it is a substitute ransom. It's still a price, but it's not a monetary price. It's a person price. Jesus is your ransom. Jesus is the one that sets you free. Jesus is the one that forgives your sin upon repentance and faith. Jesus is the only one that can make you right with God that you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is astounding that people would risk their lives on different religions. Never coming to a knowledge of faith, repentance, forgiveness, just all of it in their heads. If I just do this, if I just do that. We are to be in prayer for those people. We are to extend the gospel to those people. Paul talks about he was appointed for this reason as an apostle, as a teacher. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a, a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, this is why I was called on the Damascus Road. To take the gospel to the world. Not all will be saved, but I still take it to the world. That's what he's asking us to do, and we start with prayer. It's hard to fathom this seemingly contradiction between broadness of the gospel and the narrowness of the gospel. Donald Greg Barnhouse was the, uh, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, from many, many years. He used to like to give an illustration to tell, help try to explain this a little bit. And he said, imagine a big cross, so big that it had a door in it. And on the outside, it had a passage from Revelation that says, whoever will may come. The door is open. It is a universal offer of the gospel. But by God's grace, this salvation goes forward for everyone. And then for those who pass through that doorway and then look back over their shoulder are surprised to see chosen before the foundation of the world. That's how God works. That's the broadness of the gospel and that's the narrowness of the gospel. Well, at the beginning I mentioned Jeremy Lamfer and that prayer meeting that he started in my younger days, I used to listen to Paul Harvey. If you remember, he used to have a 
program called The Rest of the Story. So here's the rest of the story. He started that prayer meeting and had six people in the first week. The second week he had 20 people. The third week it doubled to 40. They asked Jeremy at that time, can we not have just a weekly meeting? Can we do a daily meeting? Seems as though things had gotten much worse in the United States. On October 10th, the stock market had crashed and people felt like they needed to be praying even more. Railroads went bankrupt and factories closed. Unemployment increased and people began flocking to prayer meetings. Within six months, over 6,000 were attending prayer meetings in New York. And it didn't stop there. It grew to 10,000. Then other, other cities began to have a renewed interest in prayer. Pittsburgh reported prayer meetings of 6,000. Washington, D.C. had to offer five different times to accommodate the crowds. Chicago met in the Metropolitan uh, Theater with over 2,000 people praying daily. Louisville, as well, had several thousand meeting in a messianic temple. Cleveland had 2,000 in daily prayer. St. Louis had churches filled throughout praying. And it didn't stop there. A reporter in New York City reported that in May of 1858 that it was reported that over 50,000 of New York's 800,000 people were new converts. This revival went global. It spread to Ireland, to Scotland, to Wales, to England, to Europe, to South Africa, to India, all throughout the world, all because one man wanted to have a prayer meeting once a week, praying for lost souls, Would you do that? Maybe you think that, well, that's you know a century ago. It would have worked then. It won't work now. Philip Ryken, now the pastor of 10th Presbyterian, said 10 years ago, we started a prayer meeting. Here in Philadelphia, we began to pray for unsaved people. They'd bring names in and they'd put them up on the board. And people began praying. Within six months... They started seeing men, women, children all coming to faith. Parents, siblings, children, international students, co-workers, Muslims, Jews, it didn't matter. And they just kept adding names to the list. God is willing, but the flesh is weak. He has given us the means to His end for salvation. Will you join in praying for the salvation of souls? Are you willing to share the good news beginning on your knees? Will you join us on the 22nd of March to pray for the salvation of souls? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the text this morning, for the urging to prayer. Pray that you would light a fire within each and every one of us to become prayer warriors, to pray for the salvation of all kinds of people, to pray that we would have peace and the gospel could go forth and the church could thrive. And we pray that we would be diligent to give the good news of the gospel that goes out to everyone. But it does tell the truth of your word that salvation is through Jesus Christ and him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.